Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are streaming live on Facebook, LinkedIn, and so much more. Ryan, thanks for being here, brother. Glad to finally be here. It's been too long. It's been too long. It's been years. It's been so good. Um, running into, what was the name of that symposium where I ran into you? That was the First Responder uh, Suicide Awareness Conference. Right. Down here in Calgary, yeah. And that was Legacy Place that put that on, right? Yes, it was, With yeah. Diana. Yep. Right. Diana Fajesso. Is that how you pronounce it? I never even I, tried. I think so. Uh, I think I'm getting it right, but you know what? Fajesso, we'll Fajeho. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. call her Diana. Diana's awesome. Yeah, she is. She, um, uh, biggest, uh, I published a book in 08. She bought 500 copies of it. Nice. So that was pretty good. I made zero money on it, but that's all right. I got 500 copies. Got 500 <laughs> copies out the door. Out the door and uh, signed each one of them. So that's pretty good. But uh, that was that a two-dayer or was that a all-day, one-dayer? That was a one-dayer. Yeah, yeah. That was at the, um, uh, whatever that church is, Central, uh, Central Church, Pentecostal Church up in, in Calgary. Yeah. It was one full day of just awesomeness. Yeah, and the last time I saw you before that was in the 80s in high school. Oh, gosh. I can't believe it's been the 80s. <laughs> the fact that I can honestly say that I graduated in the 80s is still one of those things that I sit back and go, what the heck? Where did the time go? Oh, I know. Isn't it so fast? Yeah. You know, like when we're uh, kids, we look at, we'd think about the age of 50 yeah. as being, oh, my God. <laughs> That's old. And That's, then it, I'm sitting here at 49 turning 50 here shortly. So yeah. I'm like, what the heck happened? And I'm the old guy. I'm 51. Uh, you're not that much further ahead of me then. Yeah. But um, it seems like it's so far away until you get there. Then you're like, oh, that actually happened really quick. <laughs> yeah. Blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. And so much has happened in between the 80s and now, right? Oh, yeah. It's a different world. Yeah. Not only a world, but different people. How so? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you know, the journey is is interesting. You know, when we're in high school or when we're out and about with friends when we're younger, we have these dreams and aspirations that, you know, we want to get to at some point in time. But I think what's interesting is that we never really realize that everything we do kind of sets us up for where we're going. And it's a journey, like with no destination. And that's the thing is I never knew what I was going to do until I was 27. Yeah. Right. I wanted to do, you know, I, I did Nate Force Technology when I was right out of high school there. Did two years, got that, did some firefighting for them, but that was during the government cutback. So that kind of went away. Then I went into other things like um, apprenticeship chef, worked at Earl's. Then I came down here to Calgary and went, oh, outdoor pursuit sounds like a great thing. Like, yeah, I love the outdoors, I love backpacking, rock climbing. That's where that started. I stayed in Calgary and then I'm like, well, you know, there's got to be something else, right? So I was like firefighter. So when I was working with the Alberta Forest Service, I was a wildland firefighter. And everywhere I went, I actually volunteered for the fire department. So that kind of just seemed a natural kind of progression into fire-based service. So I would say 80 or 98 97, somewhere in there, I started to cultivate, you know, my resume and kind of getting some certifications and getting that stuff sorted out. And then I took my EMR. Right. And I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't successful when I got my EMR and the fire application was CFD. So then I went and did my EMT and I'm like, ah, this is it. This is it. You know, and I wasn't successful in 1999 for my last time applying for the Calgary Fire Department. And then I just progressed straight into paramedic. 
it was just this weird transition from my thoughts of where I wanted to go into what naturally just occurred through experience and through life. Right now, EMS is, uh, seems to be having quite the crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, massive wait times, yeah. you know, like an hour for a response time kind of thing. Ambulances from 100 kilometers away are, mm-hmm. are coming to fill the calls. What's, yeah. What the hell's going on? Not sure. And I mean, I think... You know, there's always a busyness within the system, whether we are with uh, the city of Calgary or now provincially. And I mean, I don't pretend to know what's going on in the background, um, but I know the impacts it has and those those types of things you just described on the practitioners. Yeah. You know, they struggle a lot, you know, increased call volumes, increased hospital wait times. And I mean, I look at it now from the job that I'm currently doing on how to support individuals to create resiliency and wellness so that they can weather that piece of the storm, per se, that they're actually embracing when they go to work. Because as paramedics, we're never taught about how to be well. We're never taught about resiliency. We may be in a little bit, but a lot of that is guided by, you know, in my opinion, some of the practitioners' experiences while they're students. Right. Right. So if they've got stigma or if their preceptors have stigma or if they have their own stigma about mental health, they're less willing to kind of lean into that other side. It's kind of interesting. For the longest time, whether it's EMS, military, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to raise your hand and say, hey, I need to talk to somebody, reference mental health, your career was over. Yep. Just by raising your hand. Yeah. Uh, it's like, well, you're undeployable. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you start to see that change or has it changed in your world? Well, I think think and what i've seen just from my own trajectory is this willingness for people to facilitate change within themselves it's slowly beginning uh, about four years ago maybe five we implemented the working mind for first responders and it was known as in the background as the road to mental readiness by this canadian mental health commission what do you think of r2mr i think it's a great starting point and a foundation to decrease stigma But on the other end, that created the conversation. So more and more people were willing to kind of say, hey, this is interesting. Stigma. Hmm, I'm hurting. I need help. And then you layer in some of the other pieces that are currently in the narratives of the media, like Brenny Brown's work on vulnerability. Right? Huge piece. You know, vulnerability isn't weakness. No, it's the opposite, actually. It's strength. I mean, when you look at the data sets that Brenny Brown has been able to cultivate over the span of her research, and everything points to courage. But we think as first responders, and I'm putting myself square in the middle of that whole piece, I thought being vulnerable was being weak. In fact, it's the exact opposite. So with the stigma reduction program, with the working mind, and with some of the narratives that are slowly starting to change, we're starting to see this more interesting space of people going, I need help. You know, I'm going to take an E. You know, and that's kind of a really good place. But organizationally and operationally, we need how do we need to support that? That's part of the reason I have this show, mm-hmm. because they hear somebody else being completely transparent, completely vulnerable. It uh, Courage is contagious, and it just makes it okay, yeah. you know, to raise your hand and say, shit, me too, man. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, and once that me too happens, right, and, you know, we start to see more and more people going, actually, I'm hurting. Yeah. You know, I need help. How do I get there? A lot of people, they don't even, I mean, they might realize that something's wrong but they don't connect the dots yeah i was i was undiagnosed for 23 years and that is not uncommon no no and that's that's the sad part and i think it's a it's a 
there's a factor of our training. Um, and I'm not ex-military. I'm paramedic by trade. But I was never trained on how to actually tap into the other side of the human experience, meaning feelings and emotions. God, when you talk about feelings and emotions, most people are like, nope, not going there. Right? But we're trained in such a way that we, from my opinion, are just, we get into this clinical space where we dismiss everything. Yeah. We do our job and we're good at it. Right? 5% of our calls approximately are really high acuity. And that's where we really need to lean into that clinical space where we can't sometimes need to put those emotions aside to get the job done. Well, yeah, in the moment. But what happens is that the coping mechanisms that are sometimes beat into us and sometimes they just happen. Yeah. You know, uh, being in a war zone, there's all kinds of moments where it was a holy shit moment and my brain immediately adapted. Yeah. And just disconnected from what was happening. So, I mean, that wasn't training. That was just my brain going, nope, 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 no fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dealing with this. Yeah. So you just disassociate. Yes. Um, but when you are stuck in that, because sometimes that coping mechanism gets stuck and it doesn't flip back mm-hmm. to, to normal brain, that's the problem. I agree 100%. And I mean, I call it the clinical tunnel, but I mean... We're in a high fight, flight, freeze. So if you take a look at some of the work that Dr. Kevin Gilmartin and his Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement and Families book, amazing book, by the way. If you haven't read it, just pick it up. It's an easy read. You know what? I think uh, just thinking with this banter, yeah, it, I realize it's not just fight, flight, freeze. There's a fourth one. Yep. I've never heard anybody say it, but it's disassociation. Mm-hmm. That's the fourth one. Yeah. And that's the big piece, right? Is all of the first responder community, in my opinion, take a look at this. um, You know, we don't see it as a biological sympathetic nervous system stimulation, whether it's fight, fight, freeze, or in your, in your case, and thanks for bringing that up is dissociation. What do we do? You know, our amygdalas are firing constantly for 12 hours when we're on shift. We're constantly hearing auditory cues that signal like, hey, a fight, flight, freeze. Our CAD tones, our radio pagers tones, um, the sirens. I mean, the list is exhaustive. And then what do we do when we get home? And Dr. Gil Martin talks about this, where you go back home and then you dump into this PNS piece, right? Sympathetic to parasympathetic. And then what happens is it almost mimics biological depression. Let's uh, talk about the, uh, a bit of terminology. What is, um, let, let's define parathe- uh, sympathetic and sure. parasympathetic. So sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system is that stimulation, that fight, flight, freeze, that get up and go, right? The saber-toothed tiger is coming after you and I need to physiologically support that fight or flight piece. So heart rate goes up, breathing rate goes up. You know, large muscle groups get more blood our digestive system gets less blood. You know, our visual acuity increases, right? So there's some really, really ingrained, basic physiological responses to a stress response. Parasympathetic is that feed and breed, that moment where we can actually downregulate. But the problem is, is when we go deep into that parasympathetic pieces, it's things like depression, yeah, apathy, right? Because it's, uh, it's an up and down or a pendulum. It's more of an up and down. Yeah. And sometimes that down can stay down. Sometimes the up can stay up. Yes. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this just before our show is, um, one of the reasons people have trouble spotting PTSD is because it has those two faces. Yes. Has the face at the top where people are manic. Mm -hmm. They're talking a mile a minute. You can't get a word in edgewise, you know, and then there's the ones that are just quiet and, 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 and withdrawn and, um, very, very different. 
exact same thing. Sure. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is as first responder community, and I'll speak from my, my experiences, there's quite often where 12 hours in one day, if you're working a 12 hour shift and hopefully you don't get overtime, you're in that fight, flight, freeze dissociation piece, right? You may walk into a one call where, you know, it's not what we would determine as a high acuity emergency, excuse me, emergency. And then finish up your paperwork, take the patient to the hospital. And then the next one is a high acuity call where it's, you, you have to perform. And this cycle happens again and again and again and again. And unless you've cultivated at least a practice to look at wellness, to check in, to practice some of the pieces that I've been looking at in the last four years of my, with my new job, then it's just, you've got no way to bring that SNS activation down or that sympathetic nervous system activation. So that's hypervigilance then. Like when you're sympathetic, just does not fucking turn off. Yeah. When you're always on, always doing threat assessment, threat assessment. Yeah. That's a, that's a stuck sympathetic system. Yeah. Yeah. And there are certain techniques that can, and I use the word can, not always, depending upon where you are, um, help bring down that SNS, that activation, we'll just call it that, that activation during a day right? And they're simple strategies, but they're trainable. That's the most amazing thing is most of the skill sets that I look at now and that I apply for my own practice are trainable skill sets, but people are never shown it. They're never taught it. We're never taught it as paramedics. We go into SAIT, one of the schools, we take our paramedic, we take our EMT or our EMR. Mental health is not talked about number one, right? Transparency about what you're going to experience is not something we discuss in school. It's more of the clinical, didactic, let's learn about the human body, let's learn about our treatment phases. We need to do a better job, in my opinion, of teaching people what the job is going to do. What is mental health? Start the stigma reduction programs within our educational institutions because that's where we're going to see some of those benefits when we teach others and they get out into the community as paramedics so that they're not always switched on, that hypervigilance, right? The more prepared you are for it, the less of a shock it is. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. Uh, so just um, a couple of weeks ago, my stepson, he took up a, a job as a meat packer. And they said, but you got to be flexible. He's like, oh, all right, I'll be flexible. So it shows up. First thing they do, they bring him to the kill floor. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they shoot a cow in front of him. And then like, okay, come here cut off his head what yeah so now had he been mentally prepared for that had that been what he was expecting right yeah. uh it wouldn't have been such a what the fuck are you talking about yeah. you know uh but they didn't do that and it, it's it's very similar um in emergency services in yeah. in military they sure. they don't prepare you for that they don't tell you it's coming no you know and they sure don't tell you by the way when this happens, because it will, um, this might be how you feel about it. This might be what's going on in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it could look like this or it could look like that. Um, and if it does, come talk to us. Right. We have a program for that. That's where we need to get to. And are we getting there? It's a slow process, right? You're looking at what is, I, well, I've been in now since 99 and nothing has really been shown as far as that education piece. Yeah, It's still the clinical piece. And that's an important piece, but I think we're missing the boat in some ways. We need to better prepare, using your metaphor, to really tell people what they're about to experience. And not from the gory side, not from the other side, but there you can build a competency. Just that it, will, it might be shocking, 
Mm-hmm. You might freeze. Yes. You might puke. Yep. And if you do, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's not okay to be not competent about these things, right? Yeah. Like, and that's the way I've looked at it is I was still in that generation back where, you know, mental health was stuff it in your boots, get going, right? Yep. Got another call, go. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's going to injure people. And we have to shift and change the narratives surrounding mental health. And we are, we are just by doing this podcast, right? With your work that you've done, multiple people in the, in the military community that have done the same thing, normalizing the human reaction to trauma. It's, it has to be done more. It has to be done with more intention. There's um, a myth that I've heard more than once that fucking bugs me. And I haven't done a, um, an episode on it yet. So I haven't figured out how to work this out. Maybe we can do this together. Mm. But there's this um, myth, if that's the right word, where we're weaker now. This is why we're having these problems. <laughs> these oh, did God, these these, no. pr- these problems didn't happen in World War One and World War Two. Now they know tough, you know, and uh, they didn't have any problems. So what the hell is your problem? Mm. You know, we're just a bunch of pussies nowadays. That's why we're having mental health problems. I've heard a version of that. Yeah, so many times. I think that and narrative is horrible. A horrible narrative, yeah. and it's not true. Like no. all I can tell them is like you've made some pretty big assumptions there, yep. cowboy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't get through it. No. Fine. Alcoholism. They, like you want to hear the stories of my two grandfathers? Fuck me running. They did not get through it. Fine. No, fine. You know, Fucked you, you want to see neurotic. all their traumatized children mm-hmm. and grandchildren? Yeah. You know, uh, no, they didn't get through it. Fine. You, you are incorrect, sir. <laughs> yeah. And I would challenge anybody that has that kind of narrative in the same way. I mean, you know, you looked up at that word, fine, fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> My flags go up when people say, hey, or when I ask somebody, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm fine. Or the other, my other favorite one is good. You know, that's a red flag for me now. Yeah. Before, I used the same thing because stigma was not normalized, right? Things were changing. Things were getting there. And we've finally gotten to a place now where we can actually talk openly about mental health. We're getting better at it. We need to get even better than that. And I think EMS in specifics, from my experience, is because we don't have... Really, when we come into the job, we're trained. Right? We have no more training to do other other than the operational pieces. Now it's OJT. It's on on the job experience. Absolutely. So, you know, when you look at policing and fire agencies, and maybe this is an opportunity for them to increase their mental health and resiliency and training around stigma, training around normalizing human reactions. And I don't know if they're doing it or not, but they've got recruit classes that last months. That needs to be done too. But for us in paramedic, yeah, it's on the job training. It's almost like it's still the elephant in the room. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I think there's a political part of it too, where it's like, well, if we admit this in the beginning, in Mm -hmm. the training, then fuck, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be more liability. What they're not realizing is that the sick days, the sick hours and and the burnout rate. Mm -hmm. So people leaving the profession uh, before pension um, is higher because you're not doing it earlier. Yeah. If you start right at training phase with just awareness, yep. just, you know, like, okay, here's some shit that you're going to see. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's not about the gore. It's about 
here's the normal human reaction to this. Yeah. You might puke, you might freak out, you might not sleep for a week. Um, you might find yourself crying when you're brushing your teeth and you don't know why, mm. you know, uh, when this shit starts to happen, mm-hmm. it's okay. Yeah. We're not going to make fun of you. Well, maybe we will a little, but, <laughs> but we're trying. Somebody we'll, always will. We'll, we'll be as, as douchey, as little douchey as possible yeah. and we'll support you because guess what? It happened to us too. Yeah. Right. And that's that proactive versus reactive approach, right? It's so critical. And there's programs right now. I had uh, Dan Bowers from First Eyes yep. uh, on and critical. Um, uh, Dr. Richard Perkins, uh, he does CISD, Critical Incident uh, Stress Debriefing. And mm-hmm. actually he's out of Vancouver now, even though he's, he's an American. Interesting guy. But the sooner you get on it, just like a broken bone or bleeding, you know, if somebody's got a bleeder and they're spurting, oh, arterial bleed. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't go, just give it time. Hold on. Just, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Just give it time. It'll work. It, look, it stopped bleeding. I told you it would, it would fix itself with time. Yeah. We don't do that. Well, I think you bring up an important point that we treat physical injuries different than mental health injuries when yeah. in fact they're the same. They really are. And we have to normalize that discussion, right? So, you know, common statements that I hear all the time is, you know, you're going to go see Dr. Bonkers. My brain is broken. You know, it's stuff like that that I sit back. And, Dr. Bonkers, yeah. that's a good one. You know, I sit back and listen to some of those things and go, wait a minute. You have functional brain changes with a diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can put somebody in a freaking MRI machine and they can see the neural pathways have, have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that? Like, do you know what the differences are? I don't. I just yeah. know that you can see it. Some of our training with Dr. Kelly Furman up in Edmonton. So the reintegration course that I'm re- referencing is um, their psychologist, Dr. Kelly Furman, actually showed us two fMRIs. Okay. So, you know, you're going to get some functional brain changes. And if I remember correctly, because it was a while ago, is your brain volume decreases with a PTSD diagnosis, similar to a TBI. So what do you mean by brain volume? Like the size of your brain? Yeah. Fuck, I must have the tiniest little freaking nugget up there. Your amygdalas actually get larger and thicker. Oh, uh, mine's like, a bruiser. Right. Because, but it has fucking horns. Yeah, but just think about it. If you're constantly in that fight, flight, freeze, muscles become and neural pathways become more wired tight. So yeah. they're going to become more efficient. Yeah. Right? So gray matter, white matter percentages shift. Right? So we're starting to see some of those functional brain changes that's similar to a TBI, traumatic brain injury. If you lay them side by side. Well, and I'm it, paraphrasing like about and, an hour. And it kind of is a traumatic brain injury. Absolutely. Like it's, it's just, instead of from concussion, it's from overload. Right. Yeah. You know, like if you have wires, uh, like these tiny little wires that we're using here that mm-hmm. uh, people that on, on the podcast channels won't be able to see, but um, these little speaker wires that we have, um, they're really good at doing the load that they're designed for. Yep. But if you stick, uh, booster ca- try to use these as booster cables they'll blow up yep right it's Light the same fu- same fucking thing <clears throat> well if you think about it neural pathways there's a statement that's uh, those that wire together fire together so meaning if we've got a neural pathway based upon avoidance right so avoidance is things like i don't want to feel so i'm going to go have that drink yeah or I'm going to go hit the gym and excessively like hit the gym. Cause think about it or online gaming or gaming in general. I mean, those are all avoidance behaviors. If we experience trauma and again and again, go back to that avoidance behavior, we are more inclined then because we're wiring that neural pathway together. I guess that's the only way that cannabis can really be addicting is that if you're using it as a anxiety escape. Sure. 
Right. Then it could be technically addicting. Anything could be addicting if it's a coping mechanism. Sure. And that's just, again, it goes back to this idea of awareness, you know, bringing in awareness as to why we do something based upon our experience in the moment is a super important piece that ties into that present moment awareness and mindfulness and that mindfulness piece. Um, But yeah, the more you wire those pathways tighter in the neurological field, and I'm not a neurobiologist, God, that's like another 20 years of education. That's not (laughs) happening. But from my understanding is the more we wire those certain patterns, those certain behaviors, those certain things, the tighter they become. And then we're more apt to go down that pathway. So it's no real shock to me that I had avoidance behaviors, right? What were yours? You know, alcohol definitely has been, at times, one of those ones where I'm like, oop, okay, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here, right? I think that's pretty common amongst first responders, military, oh, yeah. for sure, because it's part of the culture. What do you do? Well, you know, the everybody's getting together, team's getting together, let's go for a beer, Right. Instead of, hey, why don't we just go fly fishing? Why don't we go for a hike? Why don't we change that pattern, right? Some of the ones were avoiding talking to my spouse, thinking I was protecting her, but in fact, she was worried about me. Yeah. Right? So there's some pieces of avoidance behavior, whether it's gaming, um, you know, other addictive behaviors, they're all part of it, right? I'm going to just circle back to that one. Which one? Um, I think you're protecting the spouse. Yeah. What's happening there is disconnection. By not sharing, that is disconnection by definition. Yes. Disconnection is the injury. Yeah. Disconnection is the pain. Mm-hmm. Because when we have problems with our spouse or, or whatever our intimate relationship is, what that problem almost always is, is that I actually want more of you mm-hmm. and I feel like I now have less of you. Yeah. So if we're not telling them something, if we're holding back, then we are putting a wall there mm-hmm. to protect them quote unquote yep but what we're doing is giving them less of us yeah give them less of us that's the pain and that's why our divorce rate is freaking redonkulous yeah i i am so blessed that my wife has stuck this out <laughs> how you many know? years have you been married uh, we've been together since 99 oh my god that's forever 21 years coming up married that's good man and i'm i'm you know i'm very blessed that i have a wife that was willing to put up with all my shit yeah. You know, I started my career when we first started dating. That was part of the, you know, if I remember correctly in my brain, you know, let's be honest, I can't remember things because I get reminded of that all the time. But, you That's know. That's a PTSD thing, man. Right. Like I, to me, I believe, you know, at some point in time we had this conversation like, hey, like this is what I want to do for a career. Are you okay with this? And we've navigated it. Not always the best way. You know, conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. Daily at times. Right. But, you know, my wife's vulnerability to say, no, I'm not willing to put up with this anymore is important. Yeah. Right. So she's definitely a part of this journey with me. She's helped me see things that I've never seen in the past. Right. And this last four years has been really fundamental. I mean, mental, mental health with first responders and spouses, you know, it's, it's all a part of it. Right. And I think that's the big thing is just, we have to normalize all of those pieces, you know, you know, just because you get divorced doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just something happened in the moment that didn't allow you to connect in the way that you wanted to, right? It's not that you're the bad person because that's that big piece of shame and guilt. We drop down this deep shame spiral and this big, massive guilt piece, and I've experienced it, and it's hard to get out of that. And there's a difference between being the, quote, bad person and being yeah. the asshole. Sure, absolutely. Right? 
like one of the most important things if uh, you are injured with an OSI is to realize chances are I am an asshole. Yeah. Now, it's this dance between I have to take responsibility for that and say I'm an asshole. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. I better do something about that. Yeah. And also not saying that I'm a piece of shit. Yeah, there's a big difference like, between the two of those. You have to be able to separate those two things because being an asshole is a result of the injury. Now, that also does not excuse the injury. Nope. Right? It, it, that awareness is, is the part where you go, oh, mm-hmm. now I've got to do something about it. But that awareness piece, and this is why so many people never, ever heal mm. because that responsibility is not easy. That takes courage. It takes a set of balls or lady balls yep. to say, holy shit. Yep. I thought it was you. I thought you were the problem and it's me. Yeah. Fuck me running. Yep. You know, but, but when you get to that spot, then you can go, all right, what does that look like? What does me being an asshole look like? Oh, it looks like that. Oh, my wife is hiding from me. Doesn't want to talk or she has that look. Right. We all know the look. Oh, yeah. You know, they're reacting to me. They're reacting to my behavior. And sometimes it's just reacting to the look on my fucking face. Yep. That's all it is. It's like, you're looking at me like you hate me, my wife has said to me once or twice or mm-hmm. 10 times. It's like, no, that's just my face. That's just my face. Yeah. That's just my face. That's just me. Um, Holding it in. Working through it. Yeah, working through it. I just need a moment here. I need yeah. to take a couple breaths. This could take a minute. It could take a day. Yeah. But uh, before this face comes off... <laughs> I got I've, some work to do. I've got to work. I got some work to do. Yeah, and that's that cultivation of, of a skill set. That's a skill set you cultivate. It is. When you bring that awareness piece in, and then what do you do about it when you're all of a sudden aware of it? Well, you're fighting the amygdala. Yeah. That's what it is. You're overriding the default mode network. It's a battle between the amygdala and your frontal cortex. So it's two brains fucking duking it out. Yeah. One brain that is the adult in the room, right? That's the one you're trying to use. Yeah. And the other brain is the scrappy kid going, come on, fucking let's go. Yeah. Bring it on. Yeah. And it's like, okay, little fella. Yeah. Take take it down. (laughs) Just just hang on now. You know, and and it it is a fight, and sometimes that fight, um, if you're not aware that that's the fight that's happening, yep. how the hell do you deal with it? You don't. You don't because that scrappy little kid, unfortunately, will usually win. We're coming up with the best metaphors today. That scrappy little kid, your amygdalas, <laughs> they're oh, like if you think about it. I mean, maybe I don't know what the seconds are, but it takes time to get from the amygdala to that prefrontal cortex because that prefrontal cortex is our executive functioning, right? That's where we draw upon our experience of life other instances and other experiences that mimic or look at those. And then we look at what do we do with that the last time, but it takes time to get there. And you brought up an important piece, breath. I need to take a couple breaths, right? Tactical breathing, whatever you want to call it. I don't care in the mindfulness world. It's just breath work. You know, it's the box breathing. Yeah. And it's not fucking woo woo. It's science. Yeah. It's science because what you're doing is just allowing that signal to just get to that prefrontal cortex where the adult can finally go, okay, you know what? (laughs) You you need to go to your room, right? I got this, right? Because then that just gives you that time. But we don't cultivate that piece of awareness in first responders. I didn't. I didn't even know what the hell that was no. until about six years ago. Yeah. Like for 20 years, literally, well, 15 years, I was sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. I just know I'm ready for a fight. I, I feel on so many, 
levels. And uh, I started using this term about five years ago, mm-hmm. maybe not that long ago. And now everybody's using it and it has different meanings for different people. Mm-hmm. I call it the great awakening. I just feel it in my bones. It's just something spiritually or psychically I just feel is happening. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, the biggest part of that is <laughs> it, it's exemplified through the PTSD healing journey. Mm-hmm. It's this battle between good and evil, which is the battle between the scrappy little kid yep. and the adult. Yeah. Right? We're learning to um, turn down the volume on the scrappy little kid. And turn up the volume on the adult. Yes. And that's all of society. That's social media. That's Twitter for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, but it's happening and I'm seeing it. And more and more adults are standing up. And what happens is that uh, the mirroring effect, right? We, yeah. we, we, we learn this in sales training. My energy, mm-hmm. and we learn with equine therapy as well. Yep. My energy will be mirrored by your energy. If you're so, not... If I can be the stoic one, yeah. If I can be the stoic one, I can bring you down. Sure. If I'm at a ten, I'm gonna, and you're at a two, I'm, I'm bringing, bringing you up, up to a four or five. Yeah. No matter how stoic you're. Those stupid mirror neurons in attunement, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that attunement and resonance is an interesting piece because there's no cultivation of awareness in that. Yeah. Right. That's that scrappy kid adult. Right. I'm going to attune to you, to your energy, like you just explained. My trick is not to resonate with it it's like the tuning fork analogy Mm. right if i cultivate some awareness of going oh you're at a 10 and i'm at a two okay i can feel my like through awareness and insight i can actually feel myself rising to you this is where disassociation is a good thing as long as you can use it to your advantage sure you know and then uh, go into the observer mode Uh, trained observer love it you know so the thirty thousand foot mode yep and just watch what's happening do not engage with what's happening. Yeah. Which is funny because we can do it when we don't perceive a threat. Yep. If we don't perceive a threat. That's easy. It's easy. Oh, like yeah. the three-year-old is calling you a diaper face. Yeah. You're just like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> did you really just say that? You know, and it's cool. I'm not feeling threatened. Therefore, I'm not offended. Right. You're only offended if you feel threatened. Right. You know, there's the same thing. It's actually a fear response. Mm -hmm. Then the fear response is, I wonder if you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you're starting to look at ego. It's ego. Right? Beep, beep, beep. Right? Yeah. Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. Have you read the book? I think it's one of the most important books ever written. Matter of fact, when I published my book in 08, I was uh, just about done it. I read A New Earth. I rewrote uh, half the book. Yeah. Like his work on ego and that recognition of ego. I mean, attunement resonant. I mean, they're all pieces, but it starts with one basic ground breaking, you know, aha moment. Awareness. Yeah. You can't start any of the things that we've talked about until you're aware of what's going on in your internal environment. Now, how do we get there? That's the key. Like all the stuff we've talked about is all about cultivating these ideas that we have the capacity as human beings to move through experiences positive and negative right in oh different my God, ways i just realized i'm sorry i'm yeah. uh, you and me yeah. and people like us and just behind you brandon there mm-hmm. uh who's next on the show um we are the teachers holy fuck yeah because we've done it the hard way right if we can get a grip on the battle between the scrappy kid and the adult yeah and nine times out of ten be the adult instead of the scrappy kid yeah 
we are the teachers for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. But there's an acceptance piece. And here's the piece that I've had to learn and cultivate is that we are going to fail again and again and again in that process. That one out of 10 piece. And if you're good with your ego, you're okay with that. Yes. But you also have to cultivate that idea of awareness. Again, it all basically starts in a foundational approach of awareness and insight. Right? We are serving the public with insight and awareness. If we never get to a point where we're aware of what's going on in the internal environment, if we have one of those failures and we stumble and fall, we got to be very, very cultivated in the practice to go, I'm not going to slip into shame and guilt. Right. Because that's going to leave us with the shit. Here I go again. Well, it's like a sports team. You know, you have wins and losses. It feels great when you're on a winning streak. Yeah. But if you let that loss uh, throw you, then throw you too much, then you get into a losing streak because your confidence doesn't come back. Absolutely. You see it with goalies all the time. Yeah. You know, you get two quick goals on a goalie, then they fall apart. Right. And that's exactly what we can't allow. Yeah. And that's the, it's the service of insight, right? We each have the ability to increase awareness through training. We all do. Every single one of us, whether you're a first responder, whether you're a housewife, whether you're a CEO, CFO, it doesn't matter. Why do you think Brandy Brown's work is so, you know, she's being pulled into massive fortune five country uh, companies, fortune 500s. I mean, it's. Yeah. She's a bit big for riches. That one. I've, I've reached out to be on my show and she won't come. She won't come. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> I keep trying though. <laughs> keep trying. Cause you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, but I know. think for me, my journey and pathway really started with this mindfulness and meditation piece that has helped me create awareness. It has helped buffer some of the pieces when I'm not successful catching my shame or catching a guilt or catching something that I'm like, Ugh, that doesn't feel good. Okay. Now I'm going to put the practice into, into play. I'm going to practice rain. You know, what would be an example of uh, the scrappy little kid um, starts to get loud mm-hmm. and you, you realize it and you flip into a mindful piece. Like what would be a mindfulness tool to shut that kid up? Breath work. Tell me about that. Starts with the breath. You know, as soon as you recognize something, so, you know, conflict with kids. I got a 17-year-old who thinks he's 35. Love him dearly, you know. My 14-year-old is is just this wise, before-his-age kind of kid. Old soul. Um, yeah, he's an old soul. And, and my older one is the same thing. But we have conflict, right? As a parent, we're going to have conflict with our children. It's inevitable. It's just recognizing in that moment of resistance when I've asked maybe them to do something and they're resisting that or they're saying, no, not right now. Or it's like, I've been wired to, that's disrespectful. You do what I ask you when I ask you to do it, right? Yeah. But when or I mean, the back of my head, yeah, junior, n- never one of those. But yeah, it's as soon as you're <laughs> met with that resistance, you're like ah. And in that moment, if I'm mindful and regulated, I can catch myself, and it's just like. So show me breath work. So breath work. We're in this. We're in. We're in the moment. Yeah. Scrappy kid is getting the best of us. We're uh, triggered. Fuck! I hate that word. I hate that word too. Activated, um, dysregulated. We're activated. Sure. We're, we're on. We feel like punching grandma in the face. And we realize, like, I probably should not punch grandma in the face. Mm-hmm. What's the, show me the breathing technique. Walk me through it. Literally, it's just that, sit up tall, right? Just stand up tall and then just breathe from your diaphragm. Breathe that belly out. How do you breathe from the diaphragm? Put your hand on your belly if you need to. 
you know, the more you cultivate this practice, this more that you actually do this practice, the less chance, like less overt you have to be. Nose, mouth, both. I personally do it through my nose and this comes from my meditations. So breath work for me tends to be anchored in my nose and the feeling and sensation of the cold air coming in and the warm air going out. The longer you hold in, And it can be that simple. One breath might give that time for you to get into that prefrontal cortex to get that executive functioning. Then you can go into that negotiation piece with kids, right? Okay, fine. If you don't want to do that now, when are you going to do it? Instead of, no, you're going to do it now, right? Because I said so. I'm yeah. the dad. I'm the, I'm the parent. One breath. If the one breath doesn't work, do it again. And if that doesn't work, do it again. And if that doesn't work, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Exactly. Or you walk out of the room and do some more harder work. Right, because something shifted in you in that moment where one or two breaths is not going to regulate you. That's no. an important piece of the awareness side too. How long you been doing uh, peer support? Tell me about the peer support uh, thing that you're doing. Um, well, formal peer support started about ten, eleven years ago. On the, so that's some pioneer stuff. That's before anybody was doing it. Yeah, that was during the ICISF times. So things have shifted and changed now. Um, the current position I'm in right now is with Alberta Health Services EMS, and my role is as a clinical educator, um, but a reintegration team lead. So reintegration is a process of assisting treatment teams and individuals off with OSIs on how to provide cultural, culturally competent peer-to-peer interactions with support from an occupational therapist or not. Um, to provide their treatment team with access to EMS-specific triggers. So tell me about cultural competence. What does that mean? Cultural competency, I mean, I could, I, you and I could do some work together, but I'm not ex-military. So when you're starting to talk about certain acronyms, you're starting to talk about your experiences within military, you're starting to talk about some of those pieces that I have no clue about, that's not cultural competency. So it's providing the treatment team with the best opportunity to have a peer that understands what it's like to walk in the shoes of the member. And that is a huge piece of what we do. We support the treatment teams through their process of what they call prolonged exposure therapy. Now, sometimes that's supported by an occupational therapist and we work collaboratively with the occupational therapist to get a member back to really what the world of EMS is and maybe some of the triggers that are surrounding that. And this all started with Edmonton Police Service about, well, I don't even know, Glenn Close and Colleen Mooney, two amazing souls that started that up there. And it was specifically surrounded being um, an officer-involved shooting. So getting that member back on their service weapon and how do they do it from supports, from a supportive side. And that's kind of the genesis of this, right? So post, you know, officer-involved shooting, their sidearm would be removed. You know, the investigation starts internal. I don't know what their process is, but they found that there was a gap between the time that they went off and the time that they came back with no supports. So what they did is they kind of said, went to their psychological services and said, hey, we've got to do something better, right? Well, traditionally the support is, let's go for a drink. Right. First it, round's on me. Yeah, first round's on me or let's go to the parking lot, yeah. right? So they started with just getting the member back onto their gun at the range because it was so important. It was their weapon. Yeah. Then that kind of evolved into more of the reintegration side where they're now providing that peer competency. And from EMS, if you think about it, we've got so many metaphorical guns. 
whether it's a call, whether it's our life pack 15s, whether it's the IV catheters, intubations, mannequins. I mean, the list is exhaustive. And that's what we specifically do. We help treatment teams provide that competency piece, that peer-to-peer interaction, and then EMS-specific exposure therapy within their treatment. One of the biggest triggers is smell. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, a lot of us know what burning flesh smells like. Ew. Mm-hmm. It's the worst. And um, does the exposure therapy, because the olfactory trigger is probably the most powerful. It is, yeah, from my understanding. You know, um, is the work that you do also cover olfactory triggers? We try. You know, I always say, you know, when we get a request to do an exposure, a very specific type of exposure with an occupational therapist and treatment team, I always say yes. And then I try and figure it out. So to date, I can only think of one um, one exposure that was really triggered olfactory. Um, we were successful in completing it, and I'm not going to get into details because it's not important. But, you know, what I've been seeing is less of the olfactory and more of the organizational opera- operational side of it too. So it's all-encompassing, right? It's not only just the trauma. It's not only the sights, the sounds, the smells. And we try and mimic those as best as we can in a safe environment for our members. But it's also the fact that, you know, it's more complex than that, right? We've got an organizational and operational issue that sits in the background of stress, of increased cumulative stress, burnout. I mean, compassion fatigue, emotional, you know, you know, empathetic distress, all those pieces. It's, it's sometimes really difficult to unpack that. And that's, that's what the clinicians do. And if you don't do it right, it can take years. Um, like I'm finally good with fireworks. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, that's one of the triggers that um, you see on social media all the time. Hey, you know, be aware, you know, mm-hmm. it might be a lot of veterans that aren't, a, aren't, aren't attending if there's fireworks involved. Mm-hmm. I've been woken up by fireworks and I almost killed my mother. Yeah, uh, I was. Um, uh, I had come back. I was on my UN leave, mm-hmm. um, visiting the folks. I was, I was asleep in the basement. Uh, had one of those. I didn't know what they were. I thought it was jet lag at the time, but it's not. It's oh my god! I got to lay down. You know, it's amygdala exhaustion. Yep. And um, uh, what I woke up to, I didn't realize was Canada Day. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hear the. Um, uh, the fireworks, and then I'm just all messed up. I wakes up, and I'm like, "Okay, uh, that's that sh- sounds like shooting." Mm-hmm. But where am I? Right, you know, like I'm not in the war. I'm where the fu- what the hell's going on? And my mom comes in the room at exactly that 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 moment, mm-hmm. you know. And all I'm thinking is threat, you know. And but I'm not thinking, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the hell is going on. Um. It, it, it's bad, yeah. But uh, all the all these years with no help, right? There's there has been no exposure therapy. There's been mm-hmm. n- nothing. So that took o- over twenty years before I can actually hold the my wife's hand and and have my kids on my arm, watch the fireworks and enjoy them mm. without anxiety. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, you know, by but yourself, so common. But it's common, yeah, and that's so the common. unfortunate piece. Um, and I think that's the work that you know, having done peer support, the informal peer support piece back years ago, and then transitioning into this world, you know, that lived experience of what we provide is super important. So when you're talking to me about um, that motor vehicle accident, when you're talking about that high acuity call, I've probably done it. Yeah. 
right? So I know how I felt. I have, we all have to be very careful in peer support, in my opinion, about vicarious traumatization. You know, I've got supports in place for that, right? We all have to have that if we're providing this peer support piece because there are moments where we're going to be activated. We're going to feel dysregulated. We need to cultivate the practice in the background, again, going back to that idea of awareness and insight on how we can move through that, you know, so that we're not carrying baggage. And if we're recognizing that we are, then guess what? It's time to go do a check-in. It's time to go get some help yourself. Do you, um, how are you with gallows humor? Uh, gallows humor is something, that, mm-hmm. the, the dark humor that, of course, I used to use all the time. Yeah. Uh, but now when I hear it, it really bothers me because um, gallows humor is a coping mechanism. Yeah that we do kind of automatically to trivialize something that's really shitty. Yeah. You know, um, you've probably seen decapitations and, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that if you don't joke about in the moment, but once you have, you're down the healing journey Mm -hmm. and you look and you have enough time, right. And that's why PTSD can kick in 20, 30 years after the events. Yep. Because all of a sudden that gallows humor, instead of it going, ha, 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 you're it's, like, oh my fucking God, yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing at this? That yep. shit is horrible. Yeah. We've and, all done it. And, and then that um, uh, coping mechanism, like that barrier, that, that the dam breaks mm-hmm. and it just washes over you with whole Holy shit. I yeah. heard another uh, soldier who's, he's, he's still fresh, right? Mm-hmm. He's only been out for a little while. Uh, uh, telling the most horrific story. And I was mortified yeah. because when he's saying it, I can smell it, man. Yeah. I, I can smell it. I can feel it. I can taste it. Like I get it. Yep. And he's laughing. And he, and he said, I'm so glad that I'm in a room where I can tell stories like this and people just get it. I'm like, I get it just a little too well. It's actually you that aren't getting your own story because you're, it's, you, you don't have that distance from it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, we all use gallows humor, dark humor. Yeah. You know, um, I've been mortified walking down the hallway. I've used dark humor myself to cope, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, you're hearing more stories, you know, in the ambulance bay, people are talking about it and you're just like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Because for me now, when I look at that, it's like, okay, what's going on with you? How are you? Yeah, It's right? a sign. It is a sign. Yeah. And although that in the moment may help you, it doesn't serve you. Right? So this is where we're talking about those things of that 5% of calls that we do or those high acuity calls where we need to just get in there and get And it's done. the guilt of using the high, uh, like once you get to the healing side, yeah. you look back. I had, um, got an Izzy doll over here. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a friend of Mark Isfeld's uh, here on the show yeah. and we talked about, well, I saw Mark die. Mm. Uh, when the chopper came in and, and uh, the stretcher went in front of me, and I didn't skip a beat with my fucking fork while I'm watching this, right? The first thing I said when I went back to the uh, table is like, well, at least it wasn't one of us. Yeah. Right. And uh, what a shitty feeling for the next 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, it, but that's the gallows, um, uh, that's the disassociation yep. in the moment as a coping mechanism. Sure. Yeah. And it's always bothered me that it didn't bother me, that I was cold as ice. Well, I mean, cold as ice in the moment. Yeah. Right. But I think here's an opportunity to, you know, to kind of put in an idea that, you know, because we're first responders and I'll speak just for paramedics, you know, we're asked to do those high acuity calls. The problem is we never learn how to check in with ourselves post call. Yeah. Like if we just take 15 minutes 
when we've cleaned up, when we've finished our paperwork, when we've really kind of finished the call to check in with ourselves. I call it stop, check in. What do you hear? What is your narrative? Are you stuck in this coulda, shoulda, woulda of mm. clinical review? I should have done this different because that, that didn't work. I would do this different, right? All of these pieces and then acknowledge that there's a bloody feeling and an emotion attached with everything we do. And that doesn't make you weak. And it doesn't make you weak. And then put into practice the simple concept of RAIN. Have you heard that acronym for uh, mindfulness? I forget what it means. Recognize. Recognize internally what's going on. Accept your emotions and feelings for what they are in the moment as a normal human experience right? Investigate where that comes from. The investigation piece is that trained observer that you talked about, that 30,000 foot look. It's like, wow, that was a shitty call. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Yeah. I'm actually allowed to feel that way because I'm a human being and then normalize it or not identify with it. That's the end. And then, you know what? Apologize to yourself literally for feeling that way, not feeling that way, but just getting stuck in this other side Right. That's a Ho'oponopono piece. You yeah. familiar with Ho'oponopono? I've heard it. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's something I want to study more. Like if there's a course some t- somewhere, somehow I'll mm-hmm. take it. Um, but it's a Hawaiian tradition of, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. please forgive me, mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah. And you say that about all these different things, uh, an intrusive thought that you have. Yep. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. please forgive me, I love you. And you're saying it to yourself. Yeah. Here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the messed up stuff, right? Think about that. That's a Hawaiian tradition. Yeah. Think about the Buddhist tradition along the same line, self-compassion, mm. self-compassion meditation or a metta meditation or a loving kindness meditation. And the Pali phrases, the first thing is, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? Right? There's some really good research coming out about compassion meditations and self-compassion in general. Dr. Kristen Neff is one of the ones that, you know, I've done some reading on. But if you look at the research, a 10-minute per- investment in a compassion meditation or a metta meditation can shift unconscious bias for up to 24 hours. What? Are you kidding me? There's a training. You do that every day. In fact, that's become the cornerstone of my daily practice. Because self-compassion is so important because we tend to, as first responders, in my opinion, put outward compassion first before our inward compassion. You know, if you think about it, you serve others. We don't serve ourselves. But really, self-compassion or self-care, you know, we are at the center of the wheel. Because until we take care of ourselves, we can never take care of others. I'm um, writing another book. Another one? It's the... uh, Do I get a signed copy? You will. It's going to be a few years. I'm working on it. But now I know, I know that I'm going to be asking you for advice on the book once uh, it comes. But it's called Three Small Steps. Yeah. Step one is to know yourself. Yeah. To, because most people think that they are their ego and they are not. No. Step two is to love that person, which is a big hang up. It's the most important part. It's also by far the most uh, difficult part because it's misunderstood. People think that I have to feel that love for myself. It's like, you'll get there, but that's not where you have to start. You yeah. just got to act like it. Yeah. And that's step three, which is act accordingly, mm-hmm. which is everybody else, every personal development book you'll ever find is all about act accordingly. Mm-hmm. But they miss the first two steps. And also how the third step affects the first two steps. All three work in symbiosis with each other. Sure. And the self-love comes with work. It, yeah. com- it comes by keeping promises to yourself. And all it is, is it's integrity for yourself. Yeah. Like I made a promise to myself, I'm keeping that fucking promise. Yep. 
And that's self-love because we have tons of love. For like, do you break promises to your wife, to your best friends? Rarely, if ever. Mm-hmm. Right? Rarely, if ever. Do I do it to myself? All the fucking time. Absolutely. So it's about self-integrity. Yeah. And um, so breaking into, the reason you start with um, knowing yourself first is because if you think that you're a prick or if you think you're a piece of shit, if you think you're a two out of 10, Mm -hmm. tough to love that person. Yeah, absolutely. So realizing that that's all bullshit, those are lies that have been told to you and lies that you've repeated to yourself. Mm -hmm. So what I'm building is a process showing you that these are lies yep. so that you are aware and conscious of the internal dialogue that's going on mm-hmm. to go, that's fucking bullshit. Yep. That is not true. So once you know yeah. who you are and realize, oh, I'm pretty decent. Yeah, I'm not a bad guy. You know, I'm, I'm not a bad guy because nobody is. I but, have failures. I have things that I yeah. need to work on. And I don't like that word failures, but I think we have chinks or cracks literally that can be healed. Yeah, we, we need to take the opportunities, and I'm hearing a sprinkling of Stoic philosophy in that statement that mm. you're just making. A sprinkling of some of the mindfulness and meditation backgrounds of self compassion. There's a lot of like, what I'm getting the sense is that you know you're bringing to bear this interesting place of a number of cultivated practices that show mental health and resiliency can be built from that foundation. And it can't be more than three. No, um, there's like uh, Jordan Peterson. I'm a fan. Oh, yeah. But, you know, 12 steps. And now here's 12 more steps. Nobody can juggle that in their fucking brain. No. Make no it, keep it simple. Nobody can, right? Um, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, The Four Agreements, that's pretty good because mm-hmm. it's four. Yeah. You can keep that in your brain. Three is better, though. And there's something, uh, the sacred geometry, whatever it is, I don't really understand it, but I have a certain amount of awareness of it. Mm-hmm. There's something about the number three that we can handle. Yep. And everything could be broken into three. Everything. Hmm. You know, and I don't know how or why that is, but it's some bizarre universal truth. In uh, Freemasonry, there's three main pillars. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, if you really boil something down, it's always three. Hmm. So uh, for recovery, this is the three that I've boiled it down to. And as a product of my self-discovery, mm-hmm. all the shows, all these conversations, and I keep getting validation of it. Yeah. That, that this is the three. Know thyself. Mm-hmm. Love that person, yeah. which is really easy to do if you actually know who you are. But act accordingly. Yeah. And that's that stoic piece that you're bringing in. You know, if you've never ri- uh, read Ryan Holiday's Obstacle is the Way, oh, the obstacle is the way, right? But we resist that obstacle. Th- sprinkle in some mindfulness and meditation in Buddhist traditions. How do we embrace that obstacle? Well, we, What's the name of that guy? Uh, Ryan Holiday. He's a stoic uh, philosopher that writes some amazing books. But I mean, you you sprinkle in this and you sprinkle in that, and we're starting to find this place in this space, I think, where we're giving people opportunities to understand how not to be better, but just how to accept who you are in this moment, in the moment. Well, if you believe, and and, uh, no need getting into the the woo-woo of of what I believe is true. Mm -hmm. uh, We'll we'll do that, because you're coming back. You know that, right? (laughs) I had a feeling that was coming. Yeah, you're coming back. Good. So, uh, and I won't hear nothing about it if I got to drag you here. Not that I could, because you're in pretty goddamn good shape. Well, you know, (laughs) I wouldn't say the best shape, but I'm getting there. You're in pretty good shape. I'm like, shit, I'm not messing with Ryan. (laughs) 
But um, we've got a lot more to talk about because the woo-woo isn't woo-woo. No. Uh, uh, the woo-woo is just how it is. Yep. And um, being vulnerable enough to accept that shit, th- th- that is the culture change that needs to happen. Yeah. Or a part of it anyway. And I guess the next step is how do we do that? Yeah. Well, we're doing it. We are. It's by having the conversation. Yeah. And these conversations are more important than I think you realize. It's critical. It's, um, this is the great awakening. Yeah. And resources, conversations like one we're having right now mm-hmm. are growing. This show over the next 12 months will absolutely explode. It's going to go parabolic in the next 12 months because mm-hmm. the foundation has been laid and I am personally ready for it to happen. It won't happen if I'm not emotionally ready for it, but now I'm, I'm ready for it. Therefore, it will happen. Mm-hmm. And it's not about me. It's about the world saying it's time that we have these conversations. They're ready to hear it. You know, there's one guy, and I'll just leave it with this. Jay Shetty. Have you heard of him? No, sir. Bulletproof Monk. Oh, no, that part I've heard. Amazing book. Just had a really good podcast that I listened to with him. His On Purpose podcast. I'm not, not plugging anything, but he's got some good stuff on there. Um, Plug away. He starts... He starts most of his podcasts with a pause. And the pause is his reflection as a Buddhist monk of in service of others. And that's an important place, right? The work you're doing, the work I'm doing with members, it's in service of others. And we have to bring this awareness to what we're doing, the conversations we're always having, the thoughts, and all of the pieces that surround service. But the big piece that I hold on to is I need to be in service of myself. I need to be able to, as you as you said, those three steps, be okay with who I am, love myself, right? Because if I don't do that, then what am I doing? Can I truly serve others? You can't. And I, not, not fully. And I 100% Cause you're, cause, agree. Because your ego is getting in your way. Right. You're tripping on your dick. <laughs> well, it's not that long. <laughs> um, but that's the big piece is I appreciate the the perception from Jay Shetty in his podcast of saying, I'm just reminding myself that these things that we're doing, we're talking about in his podcast is in service of others. And that's, I think one of the biggest places that I constantly try and remind myself and fail, I guess, in some ways of forgetting about it, but that's okay. And that's our time. That is. Thank you so much. Perfect. I'm glad. I hope I'm back. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfect right now yes brother it is so fucking good to see you i'm glad i had the opportunity to come down here you and i got some history man we do we do please stay in the line you're listening to operation tango romeo the trauma recovery podcast for veterans first responders and ems Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click 
follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.